You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry. And before we get started, I want to tell you about our sponsors. First up, there's MailChimp, which is the fastest and easiest way to get set up and start sending email newsletters to your clients, your customers, etc. And best of all, it's free to sign up. Just head on over to MailChimp.com and get started today. Audible has over 150,000 audiobooks in their extensive library. And if you go to AudibleTrial.com forward slash Revision Path, you can get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. This week I'm listening to How to Think Like a Graphic Designer by Debbie Millman. So visit audibletrial.com forward slash revision path and sign up today. Now do you remember our t-shirt campaign that we had back in April? The good folks over at Teespring are giving our campaign one more shot. So if we get 15 pre-orders on t-shirts, Teespring will fulfill the order. Reserve yours today at teespring.com forward slash revision path. We're ending off HBCU month with a great interview with Gwinnett Clark, a UX designer in Washington, D.C., and one of the GRIO's top 10 blacks in technology for 2013. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Gwinnett Clark, and I am the CEO of Lazy Smart Consulting. I am a, by trade and years a user user experience designer who is now working on an MBA to further my studies and using design to build businesses. Nice. What sort of uh, consulting do you do with Lazy Smart? Is it uh, mostly about UX? Yes, right now it's mostly about um, UX consulting and just doing basic web design and development. And I also through my company, produce UX Camp and Mobile UX Camp here in D.C. Okay. How did you get started with the idea to, to sort of start your own consulting business? Because you started a while ago, like you started about 10 plus years ago. I started at a necessity. I had recently lost my job and it was I was having a hard time finding another job, so I needed money and I decided to start my own company and start doing contracts and working with companies doing web development and design. And how were those kind of first years of business for you? Lean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They were were very lean because during the time, about 10 years ago, content management systems weren't very popular as, as uh, as popular as they are now. So a lot of companies were, they were just doing straight HTML to, on their websites and not a wide use of content management systems like um, Joomla and like WordPress. Actually, I mostly did Joomla content management systems. Okay. So those weren't very popular, but so now we have content management systems galore with Sitecore and Adobe CQ5, so they're all over now. But back in the day, people were very weren't used to just typing into a back end and having it be produced on um, on a website, and not ha- used to having to have every single page designed every single time. 
has business gotten a lot easier now that content management systems have kind of really come into the forefront of web publishing? It has gotten a lot easier. However, I kind of stepped away from that. Because they've gotten a lot easier to sell that as a business, content management systems have gotten a lot more complicated and have mm-hmm. grown beyond what I have achieved, you know, decided that I wanted to pursue. So I don't do development in content management systems anymore. Right now, I just mostly focus on just UX design and UX design consulting. So for those that might be listening, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen, when you're doing user experience work, are there certain tools that you use for that? How does that process work? Well, it depends. UX design, user experience design is such a big term, and there are lots Mm -hmm. of many pieces to user experience design. So for my part, the part that I focus on mostly is research. And my tools that I have choice for research are, of course, the Internet and doing personal primary interviews and secondary research and looking at web stats and web analytics. So my primary tools for doing that type of design work, you know, Google Analytics, I use OmniGraffle to create wireframes. I use OmniGraffle and some other tools to create personas. So that, you know, those are my tools and that's the area of UX that I practice in. Um, however, also UX also includes, you know, just design, design, the front end design. So mm-hmm. there are people, you know, who do the coding side, but I don't do coding. I mostly work in the research and strategy of UX. What are some things that clients and I guess designers also by proxy, what are some things that they need to understand when it comes to user experience and content strategy? Because I feel like those two things go hand in hand. Oh, absolutely. So the thing that that designers need to understand is that while the user is very important, the business that you're working with is equally as important. So you need to make sure that whatever solution that you're working on with your client is not just fully focused towards the user and be really understanding of the business and the business's needs. For instance, I worked at, I was doing a a presentation a couple months ago, and one of the questions that the, the, one of the audience members asked was about what would you do if the company doesn't seem to be user, to be UX focused, if they actually seem to be anti-UX. And so my response was, you know, you need to find out why the company is resisting taking that direction in the first place because they could have a very good reason. And coming to find out, one of their clients worked with the FDA and they were trying to make the application form so simple and so easy that anybody could just come in and use it and to lower, to greatly lower the barrier of entry for people to apply for uh, drug applications. But we, in discussing it, what we came to the conclusion was that the reason why they didn't want to make it so very easy for users to use is because that would mean a lot of work, a lot more work for them. And that because the barrier of entry would be 
much lower. That would mean more work for them and lower quality in terms of the drug applications that they receive. So once we kind of worked that out and figured that out, it made perfect sense and they were able to take a different direction in terms of completing the process of building the form because they had a better understanding of, well, you know, yes, we'd like to make the, the form easy for people to use, but we also don't want to make it so easy that it lowers the quality of the applications coming in. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier you mentioned UX Camp DC and Mobile UX Camp DC. Where did the idea to start those events come from? One day, a friend of mine and we were sitting at lunch and we decided, hey, you know, this UX thing is becoming very popular. I don't know anything about it. And she didn't know anything about it. So we decided, well, let's do UX camp because we had heard about UX camp in London. And let's do a UX camp here and so we can get more into the UX community and find out more about it. And it just took off from there. So it was really an, <laughs> the selfish purpose of trying to find out more about UX design and people who practice and building a community here in D.C. And it's been going on now for about, what, about three years, three or four years? Uh, we just, I just had my fifth UX camp this past January. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Thank you. And fourth, the fourth mobile UX camp will be happening in September. Okay. So it's really interesting because at first I'm thinking, oh, I'm just only going to get local people from D.C. But over the years, you know, in looking at my registration, I've had people from as, from as far away as Russia and, oh, wow. and um, in the U.K. to Chicago and all up and down the East Coast, the Northeast Coast. So it's been really interesting to to find out that community. And now sort of speaking about, you know, kind of the D.C. design community, you're also involved in D.C. Web Women as a co-director. Tell us about that organization. So, yes. So I'm a, the, on the steering committee for D.C. Web Women, and I am charged as a co-director with their GROW program, which is Girls Rock on the Web. So what DC Web Women does as a whole is we support women in DC in the areas of tech, web and technology. What Grow does in particular is we reach out to girls in underserved communities within DC proper to introduce them to web development. So we take a whole day class and we teach them how to build a website. And so it's really cool because throughout the day, not only do they learn the hard skill of writing HTML, but they also work with our volunteers to learn how to tell a story on the web and they use and using images to tell a story. So they, we get the whole experience of being able to tell a story. And now that also kind of feeds into one of your sort of overall causes that you're passionate about, which is really sort of increasing the access for technology to blacks and Latinos, right? Yes. The way that came about, a couple of years ago, I did, I was a crew chief 
doing the um, the U.S. census. And one of the things that I had to do is I had to follow some of my crew members into to do interviews with them. In particular, I went on one interview with a woman who had seven kids in her house. Mm-hmm. And but she had seven kids. And then we walked in. She was on Facebook and <laughs> talking to her friends or doing whatever on Facebook. And then I also looked around as well and looked in the, we met, did a lot of meetings in the libraries and my, and just take a step back, my region of oversight was mostly in Southeast DC. And so I went to a lot of the libraries and noticed that all of the computers were taken up all the time and people were either on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media platform. And it came to, then I came to the conclusion that the real digital divide isn't access as we had previously been focusing on and making sure that, you know, people can get to the internet and have access to the internet. The real digital divide is with production. So we have a lot of consumers of Mm -hmm. technology, but we don't have a lot of producers so that's when I you know, figured that that's you know, where I needed to start focusing my efforts, which is you know, getting, increasing the number of producers of technology. And now I know that there are a lot, of, a lot of organizations like what you're doing with Girls Rock on the Web, and I'm thinking of also like Black Girls Code, All Stars Code. So they're starting with, you know, younger, they're starting with kids and sort of making sure that they get in the mindset that they can not only consume this media, but also produce it right what sort of things and i guess you know that's sort of part of what i'm trying to do with with revision path one of the things is also to point out the people that are kind of at the other end of the pipeline the ones that are the producers that are doing it because it seems to me like you don't really see those people a whole lot in terms of uh i guess it's sort of that adage of you can't be what you don't see. Exactly. So if you're so like if you're a young kid and you don't see someone maybe that looks like you that's also probably in a position where you would like to be in the future, I think it's important to kind of have it on, I guess, on both ends, if that's <laughs> if that's a good way to think about it. No, I, I completely agree. I started becoming more aware of that of myself this mm-hmm. past year in terms of the, the, the impact that actually seeing faces, seeing yourself reflected in certain areas, the importance of that became very clear to me this past year in terms of you know going back and looking um, and looking for MBA programs. And one of the things that people kept asking me, oh, how did you choose the program that you decided to use? And I said, you know, I gave all the kind of, well, it's a good program, it's a unique program. But the more people kept asking me the question, the more it came started coming up to my mind that one of the reasons why I picked the program is because I saw people that look like me already in the program. Mm-hmm. And there were and more than just a few tokens here and there. <laughs> so that was a big chunk of the reason why I picked it. So um, one of the things that I've been trying to do also with Grow is even during the program, and we, have a, we always have a full slate 
of actual the the learning to do, but I also like to bring in someone to talk to them you know, so they can actually put a face to what they're learning, someone mm-hmm. who's actually in the field who can do that, who can talk about who can talk about what they did, how they got there, and what what are the things that they're doing. So a lot of the things, the lot arguments that I hear around minorities in technology have to deal with with representation, but also about meritocracy, where people will say that, oh, it's a meritocracy, and as long as you are are doing the work, then you'll sort of, you know, move up and be represented. What? How do you feel about that? I feel that that is not always true. I don't feel that meritocracy actually works because it hasn't worked forever, and that's not how the people who supposedly got there based on their merit got there in the first place. So it's easy to say that, oh, it's based on meritocracy and it's, you know, it's merit-based, but it's not because the people who are there didn't get it based on merit either. So, right. <laughs> I, and I think it's important to, to note that not just in a tech standpoint, but I think just from an employment standpoint overall, I know a lot of advice that I've gotten when I was looking for jobs that it wasn't about what you know, it's about who you know. And that kind of adage flies directly in the face of meritocracy because it's not about what you know. It is about who you know and the relationships that you have to find the jobs because a lot of the jobs that you might want to have are not publicized. You might not know that they're open. So if you know someone that knows someone, that's how you sort of get in the door. And, you know, as you relate that to tech, that's how you get in the door. That's how you become represented by being in a company because of that. And I agree. I mean, it's the same. It's, it's human nature, actually, because if you think about it, one of the biggest things in, in marketing is building relationships and content marketing, building relationships with your audience. Well, the reason why they decide that they need to go down that path and why that path is such a popular path is because there's so much noise. There's so much noise and there's so much of everything out in the marketplace. It's hard to distinguish yourself from one or, or another if you don't have that relationship. Mm-hmm. So you know, I could have the best resume coming through the door, but you might not ever know or might be the best person working who could possibly work for you, but you may not know that because somebody else may have a better relationship with the person who is hiring than I do. And they will right. get the job not because not because they're better, but because they're more connected. Right. I've been in that position myself. Oh, well, I have too. <laughs> yeah. I've applied for, it was actually at a company I worked for, I applied to be a business analyst. And I remember I had learned Toad and had learned MySQL and was really kind of the best person to be in the position. But it ended up going to like a friend of the hiring manager who not only was not qualified, but physically could not work in the building because he had some kind of weird dust mite allergy. And so they actually set him up at home with this whole telecommuting thing. It was it was very weird, but I've been in that position. Well, yes. I mean, I, yes, I have been in that situation, living that situation, because, you know, it always, you know, it always makes me think about like companies who look at your resume 
based on where you worked previously. Mm-hmm. Not so much of the actual job that you did, but say, for instance, if you are a big design firm, you're going to want to hire people from other big design firms, regardless of whether or not they could actually do the job. <laughs> but you look at a particular pedigree, which I think is so, I think it's so irresponsible and, and silly that mm-hmm. you wonder how it also ends up the rise and fall of certain agencies because they get so myopic in terms of, oh, well, we can only hire someone who's worked at this firm or this firm or this firm, regardless, yeah. completely overlooking, completely overlooking, you know, somebody else who is better qualified because they may have worked at a smaller firm or a no-name firm. And because of that, you know, because of that, they've done everything and more skilled and well-rounded than someone who's only done one particular thing at a big firm. So, yeah, it's annoying. (laughs) It's it's annoying. And I, I especially find it annoying in the UX community and the design community because there is a huge gap in terms of jobs and the availability the availability of of jobs and the availability of talent so there's a mm-hmm. huge gap huge talent gap but however the UX community is following along the same suit of well you know the whole pedigree line regardless of actually looking at whether or not a person can do the job. They're like, oh, well, you know, this person didn't work at blah, 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 blah. We need a specific pedigree. Otherwise, we can't hire that person or they probably won't won't work out. But they're, you know, but yet and still they're at the mercy of not being able to grow because they're being not I won't say too picky because yeah you want good talent, but being mm-hmm. lazy actually. <laughs> actually, I think it's yeah. actually more about being lazy than actually working to pick the best talent. They decide to use put too much weight on pedigree versus actual skill and knowledge. I agree with that. I know when I worked at 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 and T, it was interesting because what they did when they hired designers is they only hired designers that went to art school. Right. And it was actually even from just one particular art school, from the Art Institute of Atlanta. They only really hired people from there. So everyone that worked there kind of already knew each other. It was sort of a interesting kind of of mix that way. And so when I came in, I went to an HBCU. I went to Morehouse, and there were people that were like, "Oh, you where? Where is that?" And I'm like, if you look out the window past the dome, you see that green top over there? That's where Morehouse is. Like, we're in the same city. They didn't even consider that I would work there because I didn't go to an art school. So I know what you mean there. Well, sort of speaking about HBCUs, this is HBCU month. So why don't you tell everyone which HBCU you attended? I went to Howard University. HU? HU. Yeah, so, yep, I went to Howard. I graduated in blah, blah, blah year with with a degree in journalism. So I loved it so much that I I lived literally five minutes walk away. Nice. Nice. 
And you were in the marching band as well, right? You were percussion. Yes, I was. I was part of Thunder Machine. Right. How did you make the switch from journalism to user experience work? Are they kind of closely related in some way? Oddly so. So back in the day when I was in journalism school was long before all of the electronic publishing desktop publishing and all that other stuff. So when we wrote stories, we had to write the story. We had to use the inverted pyramid. And we used to have to lay out things in on paper and print and galleys. So Mm -hmm. the way that we were taught to write with the inverted pyramid is that you write in such a way that the most important information is at the top with your lead paragraph and every, you know, information gets decreasingly important as you go to the bottom in case you had to cut something off. And we learned how to do layouts and print layouts and how to position photographs. And so all of that other stuff. So when I decided to go into web design, I already knew how to write, already knew how to do layout design. I already knew the principles of, you know, how to lay out a page how to write for a page, how to write headlines. So I already knew all of that. So that was the transferable skill from journalism to web design. And I just kind of grew from, it kind of grew from there in terms of just learning about how user experience design, which really isn't that. It seems like a a new thing, but it really has Mm -hmm. been around a lot longer. It just has a different name now. Tell me about your first design job. How was it and what did you learn from it? So (laughs) my very first web design job was actually as a marketing assistant. The company that the company that I was working for was a nonprofit and my marketing director at the time had the foresight of saying, Hey, you know, the internet thing is getting ready to get big. We need to create a domain name and and put a web page out there. And so that's what happened. We bought a domain name. Mm-hmm. And I did the first, the coded, the first web page that they ever had. So that was how I started. <laughs> I started as a marketer, putting together a web page. And at the time, you know, this was back in mid-90s. Mm-hmm. There was it a lot, you know, that was like the frontier. And yeah. it was interesting because now, because the, the organization that I I worked for, they purchased the website charity.org. I'm mm-hmm. sure that they get offered millions of dollars a year because they still have it just to get that, just to have that domain name of charity.org. Because they were a nonprofit, but mm-hmm. unlike what a lot of um, organizations do now, they purchase their name. They just purchase charity.org and they've had it for since the nineties. What have been some of the particular high points in your career so far? Well, one thing, one of the, the, the fun things that I got to do was I worked for the better business bureau online when they first started developing their privacy, their privacy seal program. Okay. And I'm not sure if, if, so if you're, so if you're not familiar with the privacy seal program, 
what privacy seal program will do will sort of basically you sub, a company or website will submit their privacy seal platform or their statement then we would go in and certify it to make sure that it says what it you know that you do what you do and you say what you do so you collect the information that you say you're going to collect you don't collect the information and blah 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 so the best thing that I did was worked with a developer in developing the click to check program. Mm -hmm. And what that did is that allowed website visitors. If you came across a website and you saw that they had one of our privacy seals, then you would actually be able to click to check to make sure that that privacy seal was actually, that website was the legitimate holder of that privacy seal. So it was really pretty cutting edge at the time because we used Cold Fusion and SQL, and this was back in 98, where we really used databases and code to allow, you know, give people that, that extra security because people were going around and take and stealing, actually stealing the seal and putting them on their website without actually going through the program. Oh, so it was a protection. It was a protection both for the company as well as for the consumer. So that you would think that you wouldn't think that these people had a legitimate privacy seal. I mean, a legitimate privacy statement. I think the way I remember it, it's generated directly now from the Better Business Bureau, and it's just something that you put, like a little piece of code you put on your site, and then that populates the badge. So you can't really steal it now. It's impossible. Right, exactly. So that's what I I came, I developed that for them. Nice. I've actually used that before. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to the originator of that. That's pretty cool. So yeah, it was, I mean, it was fun to do because it was a problem. I mean, it's still a problem now with people stealing seals and stuff like that, but it was fun Mm -hmm. to do just because we were the first ones to do it. It had never been done before. Where did your spark for design come from? Did you have it at a very early age and you cultivated it? Where did that come from? Well, I wanted to be an architect when I was growing up. So wherein most people, you know, most girls were playing with Barbies. I was actually designing my Barbie's dream house. So I would sit down <laughs> And I would create scale models of houses. I would just you know, scale them out of the bedrooms, the kitchens, and all other kinds of things. I would just sit down and, uh, and just design it just because I like to. <laughs> and I'd you know, make up my little graph paper and my scales and my rulers and everything. So I, um, that's what I wanted to do until I found out the amount of math that was involved in getting an architecture degree, then I decided uh, no. But <laughs> I mean, but I've also, I mean, I, when I was in high school, I didn't have a lot of money. So I made a lot of my clothes and I had a very, was considered to have a very unique style. When I was in high school, we had to, I grew up in North Carolina, um, close to the Outer Banks. So every year this, we took a trip to the Elizabethan rendezvous and we had to come in costume and because I couldn't afford to buy or rent a costume made mm-hmm. my own Elizabethan 
dress, brocade dress full with pleats and buttons and collars and ruffles. And I made it all by hand. Well, not by hand. Well, yeah, by hand without a pattern. And I measured myself. And if anyone ever asked me to do it again, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I did it, you know, I created it from sight and wrote, created all the patterns and stuff myself. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And I eventually ended up donating the dress to the drama department at our school. Did you have any mentors that helped you out along the way in your professional journey? Not really. Yes and no. I mean, yes, I talked to a lot of people, but I can't really say that I could pick one particular person. Mostly because I am an introvert. So I do most of my thinking in my head. And every now, it's not very often that I will let things out of my head. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to like really seek out someone. I mean, I know that I would love to have a mentor, but as far as actually making that leap to seek out a particular mentor, I would say no. I just talk to a, a lot of people. What sort of qualities would you look for in a mentor? If I were to look for a mentor, I would look for someone, for me personally, who can rein me in. (laughs) Because I always have at least 100 ideas in my head at one time. So I'd like to not so much rein me in, but help focus me in terms okay. of what I should do, what I need to do, to offer a little bit, you know, just more as a sounding board and guidance versus hand-holding because I am capable of doing a lot of things. I consider myself much of a polymath in that respect, mm-hmm. but I just need focus because I'm like this jack-of-all-trades but master of many. (laughs) (laughs) So I have all these different ideas and avenues that I could redirect myself to, but just trying to figure out which one, which way to go and focusing that, focusing my energy. That's what I need help with. I got you. That's what I look for. So let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. Let's talk more about, about you. You have, Numerous accolades. You've spoken at South by Southwest. You were chosen as one of the top 10 blacks in technology to look out for in 2013. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I don't know, because actually I feel like in many respects that I have surpassed where I had ever thought I would possibly be in terms of recognition, in terms of the level of awareness and visibility that I have gained. Some have far, far exceeded that. Um, As far as where I I wanted to be here, I still have quite a distance to go. I don't think I'll ever be at that place. (laughs) But I feel like I am not there yet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I'm not there yet. If you weren't doing kind of what you're doing now with UX design and with what you're doing with UX camp DC and everything, what do you think you would be doing? Hmm. Good question. I think 
I don't know, actually. I can't really think. I think that if I weren't if I weren't doing this and I hadn't followed the path that I followed, I would probably be a a journalist or a reporter somewhere. I'd probably be a features reporter somewhere. Okay. Who has offered you some of the most useful career advice that you've gotten? Oh, that would be one of the few people that I would probably consider a mentor. And she has the the advice that I have received from her is mostly about, you know, along the lines of focusing and being able to see what's out there. Because one of the things that I really, well, I'm getting my, one of the things that I'm really um, interested in doing is using the dot design process, I meaning design thinking process to work mm-hmm. with companies. So I want to use my, my skill in design as well as my MBA to work with business models and all that other stuff. So one of the things that my mentors helped me to understand in focusing is that is to actually showing me that there is a space for me out there because it's all because it's all in my head and I'm usually so much all in my head I can't sometimes I have a hard time seeing well, no, nobody, you know, actually nobody really wants to hire somebody to do that. But then she shows me, like, here, this is where you could be. <laughs> this is what you could do because there are possibilities and there are people out there looking for you. So that's been the most helpful in being able to show, show me that there is a space um, for, for me out there somewhere. Do you have any plans for this summer? Well, I thought that I was going to have the summer to chill out between, I just finished my first year, and I thought that I was going to have a chance to chill out this summer, Uh but I'm not because the director of the program gave us summer homework to do. Oh, (laughs) summer homework. Those two words should not go together. Yeah, so that's, which is cool because we have to work on our capstone project, which is coming up with a new venture, a new uh, company. So mm-hmm. we have that's what that's what we're working. That's what our project is for the summer is to work on our capstone project for June of 2015. And then I'm also will be working on I'm on the event planning committee for summer of design here in DC, which is a design thinking workshop that happens over the summer where some people who are interested in design thinking will take a problem from a a non-profit, will accept a challenge problem from a non-profit and work on that using design thinking and empathy and all the other stuff over the course of the summer and then present them with a solution at the end, I think in September. So I think it's starting now. We're accepting applications now. And then the other thing that I will be doing is working with some of my classmates on a future of work project with some organizations in Philadelphia and helping them to do some business modeling, giving, doing a business model canvas for them as winners of a, pro, um, of a contest 
for this past that happened this past a couple of weeks ago. It sounds like you're really staying like super busy. How do you keep motivated and inspired to keep, to keep kind of doing the work that you do? I would be bored. <laughs> and, and the other thing is that I'm also, you know, getting ready for a mobile UX camp, which, like I said, is in September. So yeah. I'm looking for sponsors and attendees. I always, and we always sell out. So, but I'm mostly looking at this point of focus on, I'm focusing on looking for sponsors for the mm-hmm. event. So anybody interested in sponsoring, see me. <laughs> there you go. What music are you listening to these days? I am a person who is stuck in the 90s. Okay. I'm stuck in the 90s. I am listening to, well, I'm, yeah, so I'm listening to De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest. That's pretty much on my playlist. Listen to some Jay-Z. Love Kendrick Lamar. Okay. So that's pretty much what I listen. That's what's in my playlist right now. I listen to a lot, but I mostly listen to hip hop, not rap, but hip hop. Gotcha. Because there is a difference. There is a, a difference. There is definitely <laughs> a difference. What advice would you give to someone that I guess is just starting out in this industry? In the tech space or, or UX or what industry? Uh, we'll say, let's see, we'll say tech. We'll just, we'll make it a little broad. We'll say the tech space. If you're just getting started in tech, if you're looking to be an entrepreneur, I would say the best thing to do would be to find your team. Find a good team. Don't try to do everything yourself, mm-hmm. but basically finding a good some trusted people, not your friend, not necessarily your friends, because sometimes friends could make the absolute worst teammates. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, find a good team. And because you need to find a good team, make sure that you get everything in writing and that you negotiate everything. As much as you can think of that needs to be negotiated, um, you negotiate it and put it in writing. Mm-hmm. Don't have to have a lawyer because anything that is written or spoken is all is automatically anything that's agreed upon, either written or spoken is a binding contract. So you don't need a lawyer for that. Get as much as you can in writing and discuss as much as you can up front before you commit to working with someone because your reputation is on the line. And let's say someone wants to get started in UX, what advice would you give them? My advice would be to take some classes. I never took a class, but I've also been in the area long enough, and I've also been doing it long enough, but I feel like it's one of these pedigree things that Mm -hmm. I know it, but because I didn't actually get a certificate in it that has hurt me, Except for the fact that I, but I know it. So mm-hmm. if you're you know, interested in UX and you want to make that career, take some classes because even if you do know it, it's only going to help to have that extra piece of paper. Where are some places that people could take those classes? Like at a, a college or a university or is there a specific website that offers UX type training? They're all over. 
So I think you to me, you to me, had general assembly has both online and in-person classes. There's actually the Unicorn Institute, which is coming up, which is actually their application process to just start it opened up. It's mm-hmm. a two-year program in Chattanooga. It's going to be really, really cool if you can afford to go because it's only, you know, I think it's $10,000 for two years. But if you can afford to make that transition from to chat, you know, to Tennessee for two years, it's a really mm-hmm. good program. And they have a really star lineup of instructors. And it was a project developed by Jared Spool, who is really, really out there in terms of UX and usability in that area. So he's awesome. And he developed the school along with someone else. I can't remember her name. But yeah, they've been working on it for the past couple of years and it's finally ready to launch. And it's a fully accredited school. They just got their accreditation. Oh, nice. Is there anyone or anything that might have stopped you from realizing your full potential where you are now? Yes. I would say yes. And I would say that that person is going to probably sound cliche, but that person would be me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And only in the sense that, you know, it's hard to focus sometimes and it's hard to listen. And and I would say me in terms of the lack of discipline that I have had in some, in some instances and lack of just not listening. But um, I would say that, yes, I'm the only person that has really held me back. Where do you see yourself in the next, let's say, five years from now? Where do you see yourself? Five years from now, I see myself at the head of a major design consultancy using design to and consultant with you know companies in the tech space to help them to grow. All right. So just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? They can go check out my about page, my about me page. Um, okay. okay. Which is I think is about dot me slash glenette and it's g-l-e-n-n-e-t-t-e all right i'm on twitter as well and my twitter handle is at glenette (laughs) okay i'm not really on facebook but my facebook address is facebook.com slash glenette so i'm pretty much everywhere if you can spell my name you're there. <laughs> that's usually that's usually me. Gotcha. All right, Glenette Clark, this has been a really good conversation. I think you had a lot of good information to share about sort of you know what UX is, but also talking about the passion that you have for really increasing access to for to technology for blacks and Latinos and opportunities to kind of close that that digital divide so we can all sort of improve the web as a whole. So thank you so much. This was really good. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Maurice. 
And that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Glenette Clark and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, MailChimp and Audible. More than 6 million people use MailChimp to create, send, and track email newsletters. Join today for free by heading over to MailChimp.com. Check out Audible as well. With over 150,000 audiobooks in their library, I'm pretty sure you're going to find something that you like. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash revision path and sign up for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. And one more thing, don't forget to get your own revision path t-shirt by reserving one at teespring.com forward slash revision path. If we get 15 pre-orders, these will go to print, so please make sure you pre-order. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like what we're doing with the podcast and with the website, then please show your support. Visit tugboatyards.com forward slash page forward slash revision path and donate today. Leave us some money in our tip jar or sponsor an upcoming episode for just $20. Even a penny will help us out. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.